I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Dante Loretta. Uh, so, Dante, welcome to the podcast. Uh, now, you are a cosmochemist. Um, what is a cosmochemist? A cosmochemist is kind of like a geochemist in that we study mostly rocks. Uh, the difference is that our rocks come from outer space. Most of the time, we're looking at meteorites, which are predominantly chunks of asteroid that survive passage through the Earth's atmosphere and land intact on the surface of the Earth. We also get meteorites from the moon and from Mars, so we're able to study those planetary bodies as well. And our objective is to really unravel the history of the solar system, understand the processes of planetary formation. And in my case, I'm really interested in formation of Earth as a habitable world and trying to understand the origin of life. Wow, that's uh, quite the task. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a... Uh, really grand challenge for science, and our, our hope is that we can make progress on that front. Have you studied cosmochemistry all through your career? Yeah, I started in cosmochemistry when I went to graduate school, and I arrived at Washington University in St. Louis in 1993 uh, with a bachelor's degree in math and physics, and also a bachelor of arts in East Asian studies. And I was really drawn to the problem of planetary formation. I was really interested in understanding how common planets are in the galaxy and throughout the universe. And in 1993, we hadn't discovered any extrasolar planets yet. So it was still debated whether planet formation was a common process or a really rare process. And so I wanted to get at it chemically. Uh, I was interested in the life question. And so not only did I want to form a planet, I wanted to understand a habitable planet and then what would lead to the origin of life. Wow, that just goes to show how far we've come in such a short period of time. It's quite amazing, yeah. The field has uh, totally changed in my lifetime. It's really gratifying and awe-inspiring to see how much progress we've made as a species in understanding our place in the universe. Absolutely. Uh, what drew you into this field? Uh, innate curiosity. I was always kind of a deep thinker. I spent a lot of time as a youth uh, out in the wilderness, staring up at the stars, camping, backpacking with my buddies, and really trying to make sense of my place in the world. What was I going to do with my life? What was inspiring to me? And just the whole thought of that there might be planets out there elsewhere in the solar system with somebody staring back at me just enthralled me. And so I really wanted to know, are we alone in the universe? And, and where, where did we come from? Bringing up quite the philosophical side to science. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think most scientists in our fields in astronomy, planetary science and geology, they think along those similar kinds of lines. We think on very long time scales. We think of very large energies and processes and trying to place our tiny, very short existence into a much grander scheme. Also very poetic. <laughs> Thank you. Now, in your career uh, so far, have you made any discoveries that you'd care to share? Absolutely, yeah. We've had a lot of great discoveries here. I've been at the University of Arizona as a professor since 2001, and we kind of got started really uh, quickly. I was 
one of the in, uh, one of the elements that I became very interested in was phosphorus for a couple of reasons. It's central to biology. For example, phosphate uh, molecules form the backbone of DNA and RNA, so we wouldn't have a genetic code without phosphorus. It also forms membranes around our cells and the cell nucleus uh, through phospholipids. And our bones and our teeth are made out of calcium phosphate. So it's kind of all over biology, um, but it doesn't get as much attention as carbon or nitrogen or oxygen, which are kind of more abundant and obviously play critical roles as well. So it was a good opportunity for me to make an impact in the field. And the big question was, how did phosphorus get into the biosphere early in Earth's history? And we found a special kind of mineral in meteorites called a phosphide, which basically means it's re chemically reduced and therefore highly reactive, especially in an environment like where there's liquid water. So it was a very simple experiment where we just dropped one of these phosphide minerals into water and it reacted like crazy and it released all kinds of reactive phosphorus compounds into solution. If there were organic molecules in there, it would bind with them. And so even today, it's now that discovery is coming up on its 20 year anniversary, it's still viewed as one of the primary delivery mechanisms for getting phosphorus to the surface of the earth in a chemically reactive way that could participate in the origin of life. So that, that got me going and, and it kind of set my whole vision. I was like, okay, we need to continue to build on that. And I wanted to look at the origin, say, of nucleic acids, which require more than the phosphates. They need sugars and they need special molecules called purines and pyrimidines. And <laughs> those are the bases of the DNA and the RNA. And we started to look for those in meteorites and it turned out that the meteorites were really contaminated. And it was a very hard uh, measurement to make, much different than phosphorus, which is coming in in this rare mineral, which isn't common at the surface of the earth. So that's when we decided we couldn't rely on nature to deliver the samples to us. We actually needed to get out into the solar system and get them ourselves and bring them back and keep them pristine so that we could make those measurements. And I would say that's the greatest accomplishment of my career so far, which is leading the OSIRIS-REx mission to do exactly that. We launched in 2016. We arrived at our asteroid in 2018. We surveyed it, did an enormous amount of work and collected a sample in 2020. We left in 2021 and those samples are on their way back to Earth and they'll be here next year in September of 2023. I remember with that mission, you came up with a, a, a very um, good complication. You got an embarrassment of riches. You got more material than you actually expected and it was actually hard to get, uh, close the container door. That's right, yeah. Asteroid Bennu is a trickster and it has messed with our minds the whole time, partly because we're dealing with microgravity and that's like the acceleration at the surface of Bennu from gravity is about the same acceleration that astronauts experience on the International Space Station. So they look like they're weightless, they're flying around, they're having fun. There's a small acceleration that actually would pull them, you know, push them away from the, the orbital um, radius. And when you're trying to calculate and predict that behavior, it's really hard because it's so different than our everyday experiences here in this deep gravity well at the surface of the planet Earth. And yeah, Bennu behaved like a fluid. So we went down, we had a sample collector, kind of looked like a air filter you might see on a classic car on the carburetor. And we didn't have any air on Bennu. It's an airless body. It's a small asteroid, but we brought our own air and it was kind of like a leaf blower. We just blew the gas down into the soil and pushed it into that filter. 
And it turns out as soon as we put the filter on the surface, it was at the end of a long robotic arm attached to the entire spacecraft, the surface just flowed away like it was liquid. And we just sunk in about 50 centimeters deep. And that was great for sample collection. All kinds of material got into the filter as a result of that. But when we backed away from the asteroid and we looked, there was so much material in the collector. It was overflowing and material was escaping out into space. And we immediately set about stowing that into the protective return capsule, which the samples will come down to the Earth in as quickly as we could and much quicker than we had planned because we didn't expect to have that problem. It reminds me of some of the challenges anticipated with the moon mission where um, some scientists weren't sure if the moon had a solid surface or if it was just all uh, lint, basically, in space. Yeah, they had the same debate when they were getting ready to land humans on the moon back in the 1960s, and they sent robotic space probes to land first and see, and the moon turned out to have a pretty solid surface. It turns out you can land a spacecraft, the astronauts can get out and walk around or shuffle around more accurately. And um, <laughs> we kind of thought that that would, would apply to Bennu as well, but it was really the microgravity is so different between the moon and Bennu that it they would have got it right if they were trying to send humans to an asteroid that, that it was more lint-like, or I kind of think of it like dust bunnies, like just really, really loose, fluffy accumulations of solid particles. A great description. <laughs> Now, is this hunt for phosphine all about finding um, possible life on other planets? Are you referring to the detection in the atmosphere of Venus? Uh, no, just why are you looking for phosphine? Well, it's central to all biology on Earth. So that's what part of the reason is we're really focused on understanding the origin of life here on our planet, because quite honestly, we have no idea how that happened. It's still one of the biggest mysteries in science, and we're trying to unravel it from a chemical perspective, and you gotta get phosphorus in very early. Like I said, it's, it's used in the membranes, it's used in the nucleic acids, eventually it's used in multicellular organisms and their structural components. So we figure if we're gonna start looking for life outside of the earth, we probably should understand how it originated here. At least it may not be that all life originated and all life uses the same chemistry that we do here on earth, but there's a good chance that other life does use that. And so it at least helps us focus the search. Now we know of thousands of planets in our own galaxy. There's lots of places in the solar system go and look. If we don't know what we're looking for, how are you ever going to find it? So we need to come up with some basic characteristics of life. And we start out with what we know works. That is how life on Earth got started and the basic mechanisms there. And say, well, let's start with that. We may be surprised by a very different kind of chemistry, but it's basically what we've got. It's kind of where, you know, where the journey begins. And once we understand the basic phenomena of life, we, we don't even really understand what life is in terms of how matter, energy, and information all get organized to create a self-sustaining, basically immortal system, as far as we know, that has been propagating and reproducing for three and a half billion years on this planet. That's a great approach, and it's really exciting, all the potential spin-off science that can come from this uh, project. I agree, yeah. I think if you can unravel the origin of life, it's a game-changer, right? Uh, Richard Feynman has a favorite quote, and I might be misstating it in detail, but it's like, I can't understand something until I can build it, right? Until we can basically take inorganic, inert matter and construct a living organism, we don't really understand how life works. Absolutely. 
Now, whether we should do that is another issue, right? What does it mean if we could start creating fully synthetic organisms that probably will use a different chemistry than we use here just because we can, right? Just as a proof of concept. Look, I can change out the bases of DNA. I can change out the amino acids that build proteins, and I can still build a self-sustaining chemical system capable of reproduction. Absolutely. One of my favorite parts of this interview series has been hearing about field stories. Uh, now, your field, of course, is in space, um, so you can't actually uh, go there. Um, but uh, do you have any stories of things either going wrong or, or just unexpected uh, happenings in your work? Absolutely. I mentioned Bennu as a trickster, and the sample collection was just the last of many surprises that Bennu had in store for us. So when we were characterizing the asteroid using our telescopes, we had an, a phenomenal astronomical campaign. We got access to the best telescopes on Earth, the best telescopes in space, uh, and we thought we knew everything there was to know about this object before we arrived. And we had we had one example that was the Japanese Aerospace Exploration Agency, JAXA, had sent a spacecraft to a different near-Earth asteroid named Itakawa. And it was a groundbreaking and pioneering mission. And we were studying it intently. And we thought Bennu was going to be easier than Itakawa. It was bigger. It looked smoother surface-wise. And Itakawa had these big patches of gravel all over its surface, about 50 meters across. And we expected similar uh, occurrences on Bennu. And when we got there, it, there was nothing like that. It was a very rough, very rugged surface covered in boulders, some of them up to 100 meters across, that we didn't see in any of the data. They, it kind of spoofed us. Uh, and so that was the, the initial surprise. It's like, oh, we've got a real challenge here. We built a guidance system with 50 meter accuracy I went back to the spacecraft team and I said, you're going to have to do better than that by about an order of magnitude. The areas that I'm seeing that look like we might be able to get in and get a sample are about five meters across. Oh, wow. Uh, so get busy. Uh, and, you know, in space, you can't, the only thing you can fix when you're flying a mission in deep space is software, right? You can communicate with your spacecraft, you can send information to it, receive information back, and you can rewrite the software that controls it. And we ended up having to do that. We built a new guidance system, much more capable, uh, and uploaded the software and ultimately were successful in collecting the sample in the location that we selected. The other thing that happened was that we went into orbit around the asteroid. And uh, that was a Guinness World Record setting event. I have two certificates from the Guinness Corporation commemorating that achievement. It was the smallest object ever orbited by a spacecraft and the closest in orbit ever achieved by a spacecraft. And literally within a week of getting into orbit, Bennu th started throwing curveballs at us. And I mean literally. It was literally ejecting particles about the size of softballs off of its surface uh, and flinging them towards us, at least randomly. It appeared that they were coming towards us when we caught them in our camera systems. And many of them were escaping and going off and becoming part of the interplanetary dust population. And a lot of them were going into orbit around the asteroid and they would orbit for days or maybe a week or so and then they would fall back on the surface. Sometimes they would bounce off the surface and go back into orbit. Sometimes they would act like a tiddlywink and they would launch another particle into orbit around them. And it was really stunning. And at first we thought it was going to be a major hazard, like, oh my goodness, we're going to have to kind of back away from the asteroid and rethink our whole strategy because it's, it's active. It's what we call an active asteroid. 
more like a comet than what we expected an asteroid to do, except there's no ice on the surface of Bennu. We've surveyed it with all of our instruments that can detect chemicals and minerals, and there's definitely no icy surface. So something else was going on there. Uh, and then this is where microgravity messes with your head, because once we started really characterizing those particle ejection events, we saw that they were coming off at about 20 centimeters a second, so kind of like a baby crawling away, and they were very gentle, slow-moving things. When you see them in pictures, it looks like the surface is exploding, and then you do all the math, and you correlate all the images, and you draw the particle trajectories, and you're like, oh, this would be like you know tapping your, your self on the arm. So even if the spacecraft ran into one of these, it's a very tough spacecraft. It's not going to take any damage from that. But it took us a, you know, a good month to figure that out. At first, we thought it was a real danger, a real hazardous situation. And then it kind of turned into a really cool science experiment where we were able to just sit down and study them. And it turned out we were able to map the gravity field with exquisite precision because we had hundreds and hundreds of these particle ejection events and little gravity probes that were flying around the asteroid that mapped out the gravity field. So the science got better as a result on top of the fact that we had an entirely new phenomena that nobody had ever witnessed before. So it turned out to be a real boon to science uh, once the panic had subsided. Good for you for turning a challenge into uh, an extra benefit. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, Bennu is a trickster, right? It wasn't really out to get us. It just wanted us to think about it for a little while. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, speaking of microgravity, uh, you, you may not be able to experience... Um, being in Bennu, but you have experienced microgravity, haven't you? Technically, no. I've experienced milligravity. Uh, so we did a lot of testing on the sample collection device using a facility that NASA used to call colloquially the Vomit Comet, uh, more, more known as the reduced gravity uh, aircraft, where we would fly uh, these parabolas, what they called uh, microgravity parabolas. And uh, the astronauts use these for training. It's like going over the hill on a roller coaster, right? Right when you get to the top of the hill, you get that moment where your stomach lifts up uh, and then you go down, right? And you pay for it at the bottom of the hill. You feel the, the uh, high acceleration at the bottom. And it's kind of like that, except that when you get to the top of the hill on the airplane, uh, your stomach just gets lighter and lighter and lighter. And then all of a sudden you're floating uh, around and you get about 20 seconds of that. But it turns out that it was still, the acceleration we were experiencing there was about a thousand times stronger than on the surface of Bennu. So even with that really fancy airplane with the awesome <laughs> NASA pilots and 20 seconds of reduced gravity, we could not reproduce the actual conditions on the surface of the asteroid. And that's one of the reasons that we got fooled because we had done those exact tests where we put the sample filter down on a pile of gravel in that aircraft and it behaved like the Apollo experience where it was rigid and there was no flowing and it worked beautifully. It was very clean. Everything went into the collector. A little bit of dust came out and we we're like, oh, this is going to be a piece of cake. This is not going to be a challenge for us at all. But it turns out three orders of magnitude, that's a factor of 1000. You know, you dial gravity down by another 1000 and the entire system changes its behavior. That is mind-boggling. Um, but I have to ask, did you have breakfast that day before getting on the Vomit Comet? <laughs> I did, yeah. The they recommended comet. that you actually do have a good breakfast. You, get, uh, you do get you know, uh, motion sickness medication. They have a flight surgeon who's there taking care of you. 
And in general, I got a pretty good stomach. I, you know, I don't get, I don't have problems on uh, ships or anything like that. Um, so only maybe a really windy mountain road. If I'm sitting in the back of a large van, might I start to feel a little queasy. But in general, I do pretty well. So no, I wanted, I mean, it was a long day. We were flying two different sets of flights. I wanted to make sure I was well nourished. Okay, good advice. <laughs> you are clearly very passionate about your work. Um, but what, what would you say is the best part of your job? The best part of my job is really inspiring the next generation. You know, I was very fortunate. I got in this business early. I was uh, only a few years into my assistant professorship when my mentor, uh, Mike Drake, invited me to become part of this mission. And uh, he was very dedicated to the educational component of being a university professor. The science is great. The technology is great. The research funding is, is excellent. The university loves all of that. But the whole point of having a mission like this based at a university is the inspirational and educational opportunities that it provides to our students. And I'm most proud of the fact that we've had over 200 students just here at the University of Arizona alone that have worked on this program. Many of them have gone on to be hired by me onto the team uh, because, you know, we've been under contract with NASA for now over 11 years. So we've had a couple generations of students come through and finding people that can do these jobs is not easy. They're very technical skills. They're very focused skill sets. So we found the best thing was let's just find some top quality students. Let's train them up while they're pursuing their education and let's just hire them right out of school. And of course, it's great for them. They get an awesome job working on a NASA mission right away. They don't have to worry about a job search or anything like that. And we get to find really high quality candidates and we get to train them on exactly the skills that we need them to do. And many of them are off you know, in industry, in government, in the military. They're all applying those skills uh, to solve some of the greatest challenges that we face today. So just seeing that look in their eyes when you tell them, hey, do you wanna come work with me on a NASA mission? They're like, what, are you serious? I'm like, yeah, I need help. And I think you might be the person to do it. That's just priceless. That's a really sensible approach. It's not like you're gonna find a microgravity leaf blower specialist on LinkedIn. Exactly, exactly. And we need a lot of them. <laughs> More of them, apparently. <laughs> Wonderful. So if anyone's listening and they want to, um, yeah, go work in space, they should get in touch with you. Right. These days we're getting ready. We're doing the lab work, what I call the ground game. Now, as the mission is reaching into its final stage, we need people in the labs understanding these materials so that we can do a better job predicting what's going to happen in the future. That said, uh, the spacecraft will still be in space, so it's going to release a capsule, which will bring the sample back down to the Earth, but most of the vehicle will still be in the solar system and orbit around the sun. And we actually came up with a path that gets it to a second asteroid. So in 2029, it's going to rendezvous with asteroid Apophis. It'll be able to go into orbit. All the cameras still work. All the other science instruments are functional. So we won't be able to collect a sample and bring a sample back to Earth, but all of the other great science that we did will be able to be repeated. And this is a great example of what I was just talking about. So I'm turning that mission over to a young assistant professor here, Daniela Della Justina. She's been with us for about a year on the faculty, but she met me in 2004 as a freshman when she took my undergraduate seminar on asteroids, comets, and meteorites. So we've been working together for 18 years, and now she's going to be the leader of the next part of the OSIRIS-REx adventure. 
this is just the mission that keeps on giving. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I mean, we put a lot of work into making a very capable spacecraft, and NASA recognized that. And once we came up with the plan and we showed it to them, they were really excited. They're like, yeah, this is almost like a freebie for us, right? We don't have to build and launch a new spacecraft. The community is very interested in Apophis. It's a, a large asteroid. It's about 300 meters across, and it's going to come in 2029 within about 30,000 kilometers of the Earth, which is really close in space terms. That's about the distance that our weather satellites are orbiting around our planet, the ones that are in geosynchronous orbit. So much about 10% of the distance to the moon, uh, this thing's going to fly in between. And that is what allows us to rendezvous with it. We'll show up at the Earth the same time that asteroid does. You can use the Earth's gravity to actually change the direction that your spacecraft is flying and will take advantage of that close approach to rendezvous with the asteroid just um, weeks later. That's mind-blowing, but really exciting. You talked about uh, your zeal for um, inspiring and educating the next generation. Um, I know that going through a master's program and a PhD program can be very difficult, and it's, it's not just one person getting or earning their PhD. It's a whole village helping to raise that candidate. Um, who inspired you while you were going through your academic career? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So when I uh, went to graduate school, Washington University in St. Louis in 1993, I was planning on studying Mars. And as I was thinking about my future, there was a spacecraft on its way to insertion around the red planet called Mars Observer. And that was the NASA's first return to Mars since the classic Viking missions in the 1970s. So Mars had kind of been neglected since then. And there were two professors, uh, one here at the University of Arizona, one at Arizona State University, that both had instruments on that spacecraft. Uh, and the spacecraft was uh, lost before it got into orbit around the red planet. It had a problem with its propulsion system. Apparently it exploded uh, and everything went into bits and pieces and it never made it to, to achieve its mission. And you would have think that might, that might set you back and that you wouldn't really go forward uh, again, but both Bill Boynton and Phil Christensen, who had the instruments on Mars Observer, just doubled down and they went back to NASA and they said, we can't give up on this science, we're going to fly it again. Uh, and they ended up being able to rebuild and refly both of those experiments on future missions around Mars, um, including Mars Global Surveyor and the Mars Odyssey mission. And then Bill, to his credit, you know, he kept going. He got an instrument on a spacecraft called Mars Polar Lander. That also crashed into the surface. It failed to land. Uh, and he went and he built that instrument again. And he got it to the surface of Mars on a mission called the Phoenix Mars Lander. So those two were really inspirational to me. Both of them I ended up bringing on to OSIRIS-REx. They both uh, provided instruments for me. Uh, and uh, helped me coordinate the instrument science there because clearly they had a lot of experience that I didn't have getting into the business. So they were there to advise me through the tough times, the challenging times, not just professionally, but it's a huge commitment and you got to make sure you take care of your personal life as well. And so they were also there to help me sort through a lot of those challenges that you experience. So just their tenacity the fact that, hey, we lost one spacecraft at Mars, that doesn't mean the party's over. That means we just need to reboot, resell it, redesign it, refly it, and, you know, in any way possible, we're going to get that science done. And they did that many times over, and I was able to leverage all of that experience to make OSIRIS-REx the success that it is. 
that's wonderful. And hopefully they were the reason why you got it the first time you tried. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. We had a fantastic team, lots of experience, lots of people worked on that Phoenix Mars lander that was based here at the University of Arizona. Lots of people worked on um, other asteroid missions. So we brought really what I call the Justice League of, of space scientists together to make this mission as successful as it was. I would watch that Marvel movie, the uh, <laughs> uh, Astro Justice League. <laughs> <laughs> let's do it. You know anybody in Hollywood? No, but I'm sure we can find them. <laughs> okay, let's go. Um, that may touch on my next question, actually. Um, I asked about the best part of your work. Uh, what's the worst or the most challenging part of your work? <sighs> well, it's such a cool job. I usually don't dwell on those aspects of it, but it can be a... a a long haul, right? So when you sign up for a program like this, you know, these things don't happen overnight. Like a mission like OSIRIS-REx takes decades to, you know, conceive, design, build, test, launch, operate, and analyze. And so it can be daunting, you know, especially early on when, when I was a young man, you know, I got involved in this mission. I was 33 years old. I'm a little past that now. Um, it's hard to sometimes just sustain that. It's like, okay, you know, it's not always fun in games. You're dealing with uh, governments, right? And all the inefficiencies that they can bring into your system. You're dealing with personalities. You're trying to build this team that works really cohesively. Sometimes that doesn't happen. And you've got to handle personnel issues and conflict management. You want to make sure everybody's comfortable, has a positive work environment. And so when you see that that's not happening, you got to figure out how to correct it and make sure everybody is in the right place and really in an area where they can excel. Uh, and sometimes you're like, can I do this for another decade? I mean, it's like, it, you know, it's like a treadmill you can't ever get off of. And so it can, mm -hmm. it can be a grind and, a, and that's where your team really needs to bolster you. You're like, yeah, I need them to come back. You need the win. You need that excitement. You need something really positive to happen. You regroup, you refocus, you get your mind in the game again and you go back and say, all right, we're going to keep going. We're going to get this thing done. You really have to commit a huge portion of your life um to it. <laughs> yeah. And it's not just my commitment. It's a family commitment. And that was one of the first conversations I had with my wife. You know, when this opportunity arose, I was like, we both need to agree that this is something we want to do because it's not just me. It's the family that's going to be affected. You know, we were getting ready to, to have children. And so that's a job as well. Right. So you got to make sure that you can balance all that. And we both committed to it. And the really fun part is it became a family affair. Like my kids were there at all the major milestones. They were there when we launched. They were there when we arrived at the asteroid, right? They've, they've taken them with me on this ride as much as I can. And so I've always felt like the family was on board and really excited about it. And together, we were able to turn this into a very positive thing. And I know a lot of colleagues, that wasn't the case, right? I've seen a lot of divorces. I've seen a lot of bitterness. Uh, and I made sure that, you know, my partner and I were both on the same page and that we knew this is a 20-year journey, uh, you know, and we are going to go on this together. It's a really holistic approach that we don't often think about um, when we think of um, work-life balance. Exactly. And when you're working on a short-term project, you're like, well, I can, you know, I can go away for six months or I can, I can d deal with this in the short term. But when you're looking at this kind of time scale, it's your life, right, that you're making a decision <laughs> about. And uh, things go wrong, right? Bill and Phil lost their instruments in a simple little explosion on the way to Mars, right? It could all be done in an instant. So you've always got that hanging over your head too, right? So until that sample's back on Earth next year, you know, I don't, I'll still be, I'll still have that nagging 
uh, anxiety. Uh, okay, after all this said and done, are we still going to get this thing down safely to the surface of the earth? Only then do I think I'll be able to relax. <laughs> well, you're handling the stress very well, I'll say. <laughs> Thank you. Getting the sample was a big part of it, right? So much was focused on that sampling event. That was the riskiest part of the whole mission. We've brought capsules back down from space to the Earth before. They almost always work really well. So it's not what we call a first-time event. Touching an asteroid and collecting a sample, the Japanese had done it, but they'd done it very differently. And the first time they did it, it didn't go well at all. Uh, so it was that was where most of the anxiety was laid. And once we got that sample stowed inside that capsule, uh, I was able to at least uh, retire most of the concerns that I was carrying with me. I can totally understand that. That makes sense. <laughs> I'm curious, uh, do you identify as belonging to any underrepresented communities? And if so, do you feel like that's impacted your studies or your career? Uh, you mentioned that you're a parent. Um, and surely that affects your, your work. Well, I'm a first-generation college student, so nobody in my family had ever been uh, pursued higher education before. Uh, I was raised by a single mom and uh, with very little resources. We came from a low socioeconomic status. And quite honestly, college was not something that I was encouraged or really even knew about. It was, you know, I grew up in the 80s as a teenager, and uh, we didn't have an internet, right? You couldn't just go Google something and find out what college life. I would rely on Hollywood uh, as kind of a guide to what being a college student would be like. And I'm sure you're aware of what college movies in the 1980s were like, right? They were not particularly accurate representations of the lifestyle. They looked like a lot of fun, um, but it wasn't really what it was about. And so it, it was... a uh, a pretty tough journey to get to college in the first place to figure out how I was going to pay for it. I had to pay my whole way through college. I worked, you know, menial jobs. I was a breakfast cook or a janitor. You know, I did all kinds of work like that, loading docks um, just to pay my way through college. So I would say that was the biggest challenge I faced. Um, and one of the things that I look for now are students in similar situations uh, and just reach out to them and say, hey, I've been there, right? And you can, you can get through these challenges. We're here to help you. There's financial resources, there's uh, emotional resources. We really want you to succeed. And um, finding a home once you arrive at your university, I think is one of the most important things you can do to ensure you're gonna succeed in your higher education goals. And I make sure I reach out, make myself available to the students, uh, especially those that are coming from similar situations as me. I think that being a first-generation university student is really uh, something that's not emphasized enough as being a major challenge. And academia doesn't help um, in the way that so much of its processes are couched in um, out-of-date terminology that we just, unless your parents went to university, you may not know what these words mean. That's right. There's a lot of bureaucracy, right? You've got to worry about a lot of financial aspects to it. It's not just paying your tuition. There's a lot of other things that, you know, you got to buy your books, got to feed yourself, got to find a home. Um, you know, I didn't have a place to live when I came to college. I was a backpacker. I just loaded up my backpack, my tent, my sleeping bag, and I figured I'd sort it out when I got here. Um, and I crashed on friends' floors, right? It was one of the things that was nice until I kind of figured out how am I going to pay the bills, how much I needed to get a job. That's the first thing that needed to happen. And then I needed to save up enough money for a deposit and then get my own place. So I kind of bootstrapped my way up. 
Um, so I was a bit of a vagabond when I was in college. I, I kind of learned how to just shuffle around. My backpack was my home for a lot of uh, a lot of the time in my life, my early life especially. And now you're shuffling around the universe. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel that um, cosmology is a really open and welcoming science, or is it more closed off and insular, or is it a bit of both? Um, I think you mean cosmochemistry, which is a little different, right? Cosmology are the ones who study the origin of the universe, right? The Big Bang and the first generations of galaxies and things like that. I don't know anything about that field, really, in details. It's an interesting question, though, because cosmochemistry is a a fairly established science. People have been studying meteorites now for well over 100 years um, as they've been recognized uh, as objects that fall from outer space. And so, and they were also a lot of people... The field blossomed in the 1960s and 70s with the return of the Apollo lunar samples, right? When those moon rocks came back, there was a huge investment in laboratories. uh, And that was the classic NASA personnel of that era, right? So those were all senior uh, white males that were leading that field. And I would say the field of cosmochemistry is struggling to move past that right now. So... But where I am seeing a lot of hope and a lot of diversity is the field of astrobiology, because this is the new uh, version. We're we're going well beyond studying the rocks, and we're starting to think about some of the topics we discussed earlier on in the interview, the origin of life, life on other planets. Uh, When I was going to graduate school, you weren't allowed to talk about that. You know, if I said I wanted to study life on another planet, they were going to eject me from the program. They're like, no, that's not something that we study here. We study. And I said, well, how about planet formation? They're like, oh yeah, you can study planet formation. That's a, that's a legitimate topic. Now, astrobiology has been fully legitimized. It's a blossoming young field. And I think um, that's part of the reason it's been so successful in attracting this generation of scientists. You know, I'm a member of the Meteoritical Society, which is the scientific society focused on meteorite studies. And the average age of that society is 62. And then when I went to the Astrobiology Science Conference this spring, I think the average age of the attendees was at least half that, if not younger. So that's where this new generation is going. I'm moving into astrobiology because I think it's super exciting. I wanted to be an astrobiologist from day one, and now it's something that I can go do. And in fact, I'm teaching astrobiology this semester. I actually have a class on it. Uh, and it's wildly popular, so it's great to see so much enthusiasm for this discipline. So I think that is the field that's very inclusive with a lot of diversity. We're welcoming of all kinds of backgrounds and perspectives, um, you know, because you are addressing some really challenging problems, some problems that challenge um, deep-held beliefs, right? And so people often wrestle with that, like, is this consistent with the worldview that I was brought up with? Uh, and can it be consistent with that worldview? And, and in, in the astrobiology community, it's okay to have that conversation. It's okay to think about the implications of life in the universe, and even from a spiritual perspective. Wonderful response. <laughs> um, do you think we'll find uh, evidence of life outside of the Earth? Or, and if we do, do you think we'll find Mr. Spock or something different? Well, I'm an optimist, so absolutely. I think it's out there uh, to be found. Uh, That's different than will we find it because we're still, you know, you've got budgets and challenges and it's not an easy thing to go do, but I'm optimistic. I think even within the solar system, there are some real 
juicy targets for uh, biospheres. I think the subsurface of Mars is a great place to start looking, and that's you know what the uh, Mars sample return, uh, NASA, ESA um, joint activities, also the Canadian Space Agency is involved in that, and other partners around the globe. I think that's a great direction to go. I think the icy satellites like Europa around Jupiter, uh, Titan and Enceladus around Saturn, they have subsurface oceans. Um, and so we're expecting that we're going to find liquid water if we can get underneath those icy crusts. That's a great target for astrobiology. I don't think Mr. Spock is living in either of those environments. I think most likely what we're going to find is um, single-celled organisms, like the microbial life that dominated planet Earth for uh, three billion years of its history, right? Multicellular organisms are a pretty new invention even on our planet when you look at the entire history of life on Earth. So just using that as a baseline, you're most likely to find single-celled organisms. Um, and multicellularity is probably a much more challenging discovery. And for that, we're going to have to look at the extrasolar planets. I've often said that I, I believe the same thing. Uh, we probably will find something. But when we do, we'll be disappointed because um, it's not going to be the flashy things that we see in movies. <laughs> Well, I will not be disappointed because life is such a huge mystery that any occurrence of it outside of the planet Earth would be a phenomenal discovery. So I would like to, I guess, lower your expectations about what a really exciting discovery is. But I can tell you as an astrobiologist who has lately been wrestling with the whole fundamental question of what is life and how does it arise using the laws of chemistry and physics, not obvious, actually, that there's nothing in those basic sciences that predict living systems. So it's like, are we missing some science here? Or is there just some aspect of organization or emergent properties that we haven't uncovered yet? Finding another instance of life would really help unravel some of those fundamental issues. So uh, you should be excited if we find microbial life on Mars. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> One, uh, I guess, semi-life form that we've all had to deal with uh, the past few years has been uh, the coronavirus. I'm curious, has COVID-19 affected your work in any way? Of course, COVID-19 has affected all of us, all of our lives in, in profound ways that we never saw coming. So uh, we were pretty well prepared for it because we're already a distributed team, right? We've got uh, a lot of people here in Arizona. We got people in Colorado. We got people in Maryland. We have partners in Canada. Europe, Japan, Australia, all over the world. So we were used to the whole remote meeting uh, idea. That wasn't new to us. It's like, okay, sure, we can hop on a video conference and we can have these meetings that we were planning on having in person. That was the easy part. The hard part was I had two kids running around in the background. I had a dog, right, that was buying for attention while I'm trying to do all this work. I had to make sure that the kids were doing their schoolwork. My wife also is working. She needed a separate office space. And that was just amplified across the entire team. It was also just really stressful. Um, quite honestly, the leadership uh, was not inspiring confidence that we were going to solve this problem nationally or across the world. So there was a period of despair, uh, right, that everybody was going through at the time. And uh, that made it really challenging to focus on the jobs that we needed to do. And I would say the, the hardest part was, you know, we collected the sample in October of 2020. That was right in the middle of probably the worst parts of the pandemic. The vaccines, we weren't sure if they were going to work or not. They were still undergoing testing. It was months away before they would be released. 
and so we had to have a very small crew in the Spacecraft Operations Center in Colorado for that actual event. And this was the culmination of, of a decade of hard work by hundreds of people all around the world. The plan was we were all going to gather and celebrate together this amazing accomplishment. And we weren't able to do that. And so it's still a painful memory, the fact that what we did was so outstanding, um, but we never really got to recognize it as a group. And, and we couldn't even hug each other at the moment of sampling, right? We had to stay six feet apart and, and do virtual hugs and virtual high fives. It was brutal. It was really, really hard. I feel for you at the end of such a long, uh, patient project, uh, you weren't able to have your cake and eat it too. Right. The good news is the sample's coming back next year. That's the culmination of all of that work. So we are planning a big party, as you can imagine, uh, at that time. So hopefully we get to recover and, and truly celebrate the awesome accomplishment that is OSIRIS-REx. Absolutely. I'd like you to look to the long term. Uh, what would you like to have as your professional legacy when you retire? Hmm. Well, a lot of it we talked about, which is the... Uh, training and education and the hundreds of people that grew up on this program and putting talented, knowledgeable people out into the world that know that you can solve grand challenges is, is probably the greatest legacy. Um, but quite honestly, if I'm thinking a little more selfishly, I hope the keys to the origin of life are in those samples. And if we don't figure them out, the good news is those samples are available for generations into the future. Uh, so we might not be smart enough to understand uh, the secrets that are locked inside of there. But 50 years from now, there'll be people who are smarter, with better equipment, uh, asking different questions. And I would be thrilled if I heard of a scientific discovery uh, well into the future when I'm you know, out to pasture that somebody actually went to the Bennu samples and found something that we missed and it helped us unravel the final clues to the origin of life. Well, I have confidence in you and your team. You've uh, already overcome so much that I think you may hold the keys of life uh, and they're on their way here. <laughs> that would be amazing, yes. My final question, uh, again, I want you to look to the future. I find that uh, the world is changing at an immense speed these days and the field that a person enters at the beginning of their career can be completely unrecognizable by the time that they retire. Uh, so where do you see your field going and what advice do you have for young people to anticipate some of these changes and get ahead of the curve? Great question. Um, in space exploration, the biggest game changer right now is the uh, transition from government funded projects to private sector. Right? We're really seeing a lot of industry start to uh, think much beyond Earth orbit. And to me, that's a, as a scientist, that's really exciting because if somebody figures out how to go to another planetary body and make a profit, science is going to go along for the ride. Right? We're just going to be able to be right there. I'm like, hey, can I have a little bit of that sample that you're mining off that asteroid? Because I want to understand these fundamental problems. And of course, they'll be excited to do that and provide that material for me. So I would say if you are a early career individual and you're thinking about space exploration, uh, there's the standard traditional way of going through NASA, NASA funded projects. But I think the real action is gonna be in, in the private sector and t figuring out how to truly make uh, homo sapiens an interplanetary species. And that is where I see our field going. I think it's inevitable. Uh, the cost of launch is coming down. 
private companies. For example, Rocket Lab is funding a mission to Venus. To me, that's an amazing step forward. That's the first time a private entity has funded an interplanetary exploration adventure. Uh, and I expect that we'll see more and more of that as, as the field matures, the technology matures. And quite honestly, all these people that we trained up that are going out there knowing how to solve big problems, they're going to be the ones that take on those adventures. You really bring to life the optimism of the 60s and the early space program. And after uh, so many seemingly false starts, it seems like the future is finally here. I think that's right. And, you know, we never gave up. There was the, the doldrums of the 1980s when NASA was really hurting, right, with some major disasters that really set back the credibility and the interest. Um, but, you know, there were the true believers out there, right, that we're just going to keep going. We're going to keep pushing this forward. Uh, those who came before me, uh, those on my team and those uh, that are going to be leading us into the future. Don't give up hope. Follow your dreams. Uh, there's amazing things that are out there to do. The best times are still ahead of us. I know that the world can really seem uh, full of despair, but it's not. Uh, there's a lot of goodness out there. Focus your energies on that and you can make amazing things happen. What a wonderful message. I can see why you're so popular here at UBC. <laughs> Dante, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Is there anything I missed or anything you want to add before I let you go? Uh, well, I'd like to shout out to my UBC colleagues. There'll be samples from Bennu coming there next year. So we're really excited to get into the laboratories of Dominique Weiss and her amazing team. Uh, they'll be doing some of the most important measurements. And we're really happy to have Canada and the Canadian Space Agency as a partner on our program. They've been wonderful to work with, uh, and they contributed enormously to mission success. Thanks for, uh, for yeah, for recognizing Canada. You bet. <laughs> Thanks for sharing all your stories and your passion and just your knowledge um, and your all-around optimism. It's been refreshing. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor, Sarah Robertson, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Department of Earth, Ocean, and Atmospheric Sciences here at the University of British Columbia. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast or listen in on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you find your podcasts. And see you next week here on Earth. 